everybody. Welcome to the Minnesota Bound podcast, the stories behind the stories. I'm Laura Sherry, your host for today, and I am very excited about our guest on the Minnesota Bound podcast this afternoon. I have the pleasure of having Lane Kennedy on with me today. He is a well-known editorial photographer. Uh, some of his excursions um, have included Kenya, Cuba, Iceland, Greenland. Of course, his favorite place to photograph is Minnesota. And he's also um, been, has done some work for National Geographic, um, National Geographic Society, excuse me, Smithsonian, Life, Sports Illustrated, you name it. Lane, welcome to the Minnesota Bound Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, I am so excited to have you on the podcast today. If um, listeners, if you didn't see Lane Kennedy's segment that just aired on Minnesota Bound, make sure to check that out because um, you are one of the true, true artists that I had the pleasure of interviewing. And I enjoyed our time together so much because the way you describe nature and the art that you work on and your photography is so colorful. And I just really enjoyed listening to you and all your adventures that you've had and um, and the places that you've been able to visit with your photography. Yeah, thanks. Well, it was very kind of you guys to come out and visit with me. It was uh, fun conversations about uh, boy photography and and wood. I mean, that was that was fun. Yes. So besides Lane being an incredible uh, photographer and um, traveling the world for many publications shooting beautiful images. He's also a wood bowl carver, um, not even on the side. I feel like you're wood bowl carving all the time, especially in the wintertime, right? Yeah, it's, it is. It's kind of the hot time because uh, actually more for, for a wood turner, at least for me anyway, I turn in the summer months because, you know, I get the trees that come down in storms. And so they're, they, they call them green. You know, there's still fresh trees that came down. So they most of them turn like butter. So it's nicer than turning a bowl or a log that's been sitting forever and dried. Yeah. It's a whole different process, you know, when you're when you're turning it. So what I typically do is I try to turn as much as I can in the summer months let the bowls dry and warp and do all the things that nature does to a piece of wood that's been cut up. And then in the winter time, I do my sanding uh, because, you know, in many ways, the photography business slows down a little bit in the winter time. Uh, and so that gives me ample time to go in and kind of use, you know, sanding the bowls and finishing the bowls as my art therapy. Um, and that usually happens in the winter months. And I, um, bought one of your bulls when I was over at your house uh, doing the shooting the Minnesota Bound story and it's still how's it doing how's it doing it's my favorite piece in my entire house. <laughs> oh, you're too kind <laughs> so I um I see it every single morning every day actually I'm staring at it right now I I'm doing this podcast right from my kitchen so I can see the wood ball <laughs> excellent Wisconsin ash burl I remember that and it's so beautiful. And, you know, we're going to be talking about a lot of things that are very visual on this podcast. So I highly recommend if you're listening um, to go to Lane Kennedy's website to check out um, some of his beautiful imagery. And do you have your wood bowls up on your website as well? Or is that just Instagram? You know, I, I put them on Instagram and I also will post usually when one's finished on Facebook. You know, I just haven't. I, I tell you, it's funny. Uh, on my photography website, I am going to put bowls up, I think, next year. But, you know, I haven't done it in the past 
really for a reason, because when I started turning, you know, I learned how to turn bowls at the North House Folk School up in Grand Marais, but it was with a Norwegian ale for a Norwegian ale bowl, which is done on a pole lathe. And it's very different than the electric lathe that I'm using now. But, you know, I got into bowl turning because I never wanted it to be a business. So I didn't put it on my website because I didn't want that kind of demand because I do it because I like it. And the minute something becomes a business, you know, it, it can change its, <laughs> its enjoyment to you in many ways. And so I've always tried to keep them separate. Uh, so that's why they weren't on the, on the website uh, because then there was a demand and then it, it became work. And it, you know, to be able to go out, and just lose myself making bowls, you know, that, that, had the potential of becoming compromised and I just didn't want to do that. Well, that's that I totally honor that. And that is true. Once something becomes a business, you almost feel pressure to have a certain amount of bowls and inventory and all of that. But exactly. Want to um, check out some of Lane's beautiful bowls and photography. His uh, Instagram handle is Lane underscore Kennedy underscore, excuse me, Kennedy. And your website is lanekennedy.com. And um, it's always fun to see what bowls pop up up on the Instagram page of what you're working on over there. But, um, you know, speaking of your passions, and we'll get to some of the wood bowl turning um, a little bit later here, you know, with your photography, how did you end up, you know, having such an extensive career in photography? What drew you to photography in the first place? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, when I was, my dad was a, a, a pilot in the Air Force, a rescue pilot in the Air Force. And so we moved around a lot. And my very early, in fact, my first camera, I think I was like six or seven years old. And we were living in California at the time. And we went to the California State Fair. And there was one of those little booths that was selling like little spy cameras and 100 rolls of film for six bucks. You know, and I talked to my dad. I said, gosh, I would love to do this and run around and take pictures of my friends, you know, and what have you around the house and the dog, our little dog, Penny, you know. And he talked, tried to talk me out of it because he said, you know, this is this is something that probably won't work out because he knew better. He's, you're going to get ripped off. This is going to be crazy. Six dollars to a six year old way back when was like worth a million dollars, you know, but I got it. And I ran around the neighborhood and I took thousands of pictures with those hundred rolls. And back then you took the pictures to the drugstore, you know, to get developed. And of course we did and nothing turned out. <laughs> and, and that was it for another, also then I had to wait another 10 years before I started taking pictures again. But I never forgot that what the camera did for me, even as a young kid like that, it led me around the neighborhood. You know, you went and you did things because you wanted to record it and you wanted to share it. I mean, that was a that was a really interesting concept for a little kid. You know, it was, it, it was an excuse to be out and then you could share it. And unfortunately, I couldn't share it then. But then at, in high school, I, I grew up and we were stationed in Alaska. So all of my high, year, high school years were uh, in Anchorage. And, you know, man, we'd go skiing. We'd go on rafting trips and fishing. And so we had a great photography department at the high school. And so I could go take pictures, come back to school develop and make people prints i mean and then you know they're going oh this is so cool and so you know you can kind of see what happens if you're if you're getting people that are sharing that they're happy about what, what you've taken that motivates you to keep taking more right and so it's like when you're learning to play the guitar you know until you can start playing things you know it's just noise but once you start playing things people start saying hey that sounds nice 
it motivates you to go to the next step, the next level. And so I've been very fortunate that people have enjoyed my work and that keeps me going. And, you know, I've never lost interest in it. And so there's just reasons to keep moving until I suppose I stop getting happiness from it. Um, there's no reason to quit. And, you know, your photography has taken you all over the world from, um, you know, the Amazon River, the Caribbean. You were even taking along with some polar Inuit hunters by dog sled. Uh, you've been to Africa. Do you have any one destination that really has stuck with you that it was either ultra challenging to capture the images you were trying to capture or that really... Um, the culture just struck you as, you know, very interesting. Any, do you have any of those that really stick out in your mind? Yeah, well, there's hundreds of them. And, you know, yeah. because each each one is different. Every story you work on is different. And, and your relationship with that story, as opposed to, say, a single photograph, can be different based on any variety of things. And you, know, you might meet somebody that uh, on, on a particular trip that, like, when I was on the Amazon and we were shooting, uh, it was a story on the culture of the pink dolphin wow and and the the dolphin is just is pink as little flamingo and the local indigenous indigenous tribes that live on the upper amazon up to the marion in peru you know it has a very mythological legend to it and they they revere the dolphin they don't hunt it you know they they stay away from it they believe that it it, it the dolphins have uh bars and restaurants underwater that they party in and they take care of and you're not supposed to disturb them and all of this and that was fascinating and then when you would talk to the locals and you would see what you're doing then when you saw one of these dolphins, which are somewhat elusive. The, the pink dolphin is known as the Boto dolphin. And it doesn't look like flipper, like we think most dolphins look like. It's got all those features to it, except right on the top of the head, it's a big, like a volleyball trying to grow out of its head. And wow. it, so it looks kind of odd, but it's so spectacular when you see one. And then you see the culture and every village that you would come to generally has things that are hanging up that are kind of praising the dolphin. Um, so that whole concept, you know, gets embedded into you when you're on these assignments and it sticks with you until your next assignment. And then something else comes up, you know, um, I did a story on oil drillers um, in Kansas for Smithsonian Magazine. And there was an accident on one of the derricks. And, you know, so, so you see where I'm going with, then that sticks with you. And it left mm -hmm. such an imprint on you. And so I guess the bottom line, Laura, for me, and the beauty of, of editorial work is that I like to tell people that every assignment that I'm on, it's like being an actor in a different film because you get to walk in somebody else's shoes for a small period of time, which then you gain a wealth of information and understanding and, and non-judgmental about who they are and what they do. And so each time, so, you know, one week you're a fireman, next week, you know, you're a guy on the Amazon River, the next week, you know, you're with the Polar Inuit going dog sledding across, you know, the glaciers. And I tell you, that's rich. That's, that's just rich for me. And that it, it has helped me as a person because I feel so much uh, more balanced in how I see things. Um, mm -hmm. And, and that's a real appreciation. And consequently, that learning that I've been able to acquire, as I think, has been passed on to our kids in just how we hold conversations and how we want them to look at the world. You know, so it has it has its bonuses. It really does. 
So awesome. And, you know, I know spending significant amount of time when your job uh, requires you to be outdoors and you're traveling to very remote places. And I've seen this when we've been on shoots with some of our photographers and and when weather becomes a factor. And I know you are a huge lover of ice and blizzards. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. uh, Yes. (laughs) Which is, um, I don't know how your fingers can able to, you know, hit that that button to take the photo when you're in those conditions. But is there any time where you were out and the conditions were so incredibly extreme that um, that was a big memory for you? Yeah, um, there was a, a period here about three or four. Well, I guess it's longer than that now. I think it's over five years. But if you think back, and you will remember this because being in the Midwest, there was a series of tornadoes that hit um, Oklahoma, more Oklahoma. And mm-hmm. if you remember, it tore through a school. I think it killed 24 people. Um, Tin Samaras, who was probably the world's, was the world's leading kind of expert on tornadic activities, was killed along with his son in that particular storm. And I was traveling, um, working on kind of my own work on uh, climate change and the changing weather in the upper Midwest and the lower Midwest and how storms are becoming harder, more frequent, um, and so on and so forth. I was traveling with Melanie Metz, who was... Um, she was this gal that uh, is a professional uh, storm chaser. It sounds kind of um, strange, but that's what she does. She's basically a scientist that studies uh, weather. And anyway, I was traveling with her, and we got caught in that storm. And when we got caught in that storm, she had two other people with her. I was traveling in my Jeep by myself and following them, and we were using our cell phones to communicate about where to go and so on and so forth as we followed each other. Well, anyway, this torno- tornado came in. And we got separated on the roads trying to get away from it. And I never saw her again. And while everybody was trying to evade the storm, they got to realize this happened on a Friday afternoon. And it happened a week after the previous tornado went through that happened on a Friday afternoon at rush hour. And that one wasn't announced. And so people, and it just ripped more Oklahoma apart. And so now it's exactly a week later and we're in another situation the same way. Now everybody overreacted and they were fleeing Oklahoma City, the area down there, like nobody's business. I mean, people going the wrong way down the roads, cutting across people's lawns and farm fields, trying to get out of the way of this thing. So as I'm on the road trying to get, you kind of weaved, you went south, then west, south, then west. And picture of the map is a grid, you know, every five miles, right? There's, there's a, a road and these aren't paved roads. A lot of them are dirt roads and I'm going down the road and I'm coming to an intersection that was coming up where I wanted to take my right to go West because the storm's moving Northeast, right? So you're trying to get away from it by going South, then West, South and West. And I finally got into the stream of traffic moving to the South. I came up to a spot where I could turn. And right when I appeared at that intersection, A car came flying from the other direction, coming from the east, ran the stop sign and T-boned the guy in front of me and threw him right into a tree. And I, his car, the guy who was driving it, his car flipped like a hockey puck rolling down the road and flipped into a ditch. The Subaru that hit the tree hit it square on. And I just went, nobody survived that. Nobody survived that. And Laura, the scariest part of this whole thing was that the storm now is still bearing down on you. You know, branches are flying around, the wind's whipping things up. Nobody stopped 
to help any of these people except me. And so I pulled off the side of the road and tried to see if there was anybody in that car upside down. Five kids and two adults came out of that car. And I piled them all into my Jeep and drove them as quickly as I could, which took about 45 minutes to get through the storm to I-35, where there was a small town where we got to the school where everybody was taking shelter. And I found a fireman, told him what happened. I had people bleeding in the Jeep. What do I do? Where can I bring them? He said, follow me. He fired up the engine and the sirens and took me to the hospital, unloaded the family. And, you know, that was that was scary. That was scary. But, you know, it's one of those things you're not scared until it's over with. And then you realize what had just happened because you're just trying to help these people, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to get out of there. Everybody's trying to survive. And the, the really bizarre thing about it is that as I was leaving the hospital and said goodbye to this family and I'm now trying to find Melanie and there's no self-service because all the towers had come down, you know, so it was just, you were like driving blind. As I'm coming out of the hospital parking lot, I hear this voice, sir, sir, are you the guy that brought the family in from the accident? And, you know, this was 35, 40 miles away, right? How would he know this and that quickly? And I said, yes, sir, I am. And he looks at me, goes, I'm the guy in the other car. And I, I just started crying. You know? Oh, my goodness. He survived that crash. And he was now bringing his family to the hospital. And so we had a good hug, you know, and talked and cried. And <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Those kinds of things hit you. And you don't forget those things, you know. Yeah. And so that was that was a weather related, you know. But then there's been other stories where you go on and something so wonderful happens that, you know, you're in tears of, of joy. So it's 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 a paradox. You go back and forth. But, you know, cold doesn't bother me. I will say that cold doesn't bother me. I think growing up in Alaska was a real teaser for coming to Minnesota, tropical Minnesota, you know. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, it doesn't feel too tropical today, I'm going to be honest. No, it doesn't. <laughs> and you love photographing ice, which I found, you know, out of all the places you've been and, you know, from, you know, the African safari animals to all the places around the globe. And you said one of your favorite things to photograph is ice. Yeah, you know, there's there's just something. Well, you know that, too, from being out from ice fishing. There's just, you know, you get to a piece of black ice that's got bubbles frozen in it coming up from the bottom. You know, that's just nature's art. And and growing up in Alaska and all the glaciers that are up there, there's that that glacial blue. And there's just nothing like that color any place on the planet. And I just absolutely love that color. And so that quality of translucence. And remember, as a photographer, what do, you know, what do, our job requires looking through glass, right? So there's all of these connections about how looking through glass and ice and translucence and light, all of these things come together. And I think the other thing is that with ice and winter and cold, um, as a photographer, you know, so many people, when I was a young shooter, you know, if you weren't working in newspapers and you wanted to be an outdoors photographer, they would go to the Southwest where everything's just, you know, enormous in scale, you know, Yosemite, you know, uh, the Grand Canyon, uh, Black Canyon of the Gunnison, you know, places like this. They're just wowzers. But, you know, if you think about the best times to go there, there's always other people there. Right. Mm -hmm. It's always crowded. Are you going to get an original shot? Are you going to be the one, you know, that gets something that nobody else has seen? Chances are pretty slim. Right. You're just kind of duplicating what has been done. You go out in a 
you know, 45 degree below weather in Minnesota and you're in a blizzard, there's nobody <laughs> else out there, you know, yeah, so you deal. can, you <laughs> capture things that nobody else is getting. And that makes it a challenge, which makes it interesting, which keeps you motivated. So fascinating. So we, I would love, um, as we move forward here, we're going to take a quick break, but I want to chat with you about, you know, just tips and tricks that you can give to others who are passionate about photography and they're trying to learn how to really capture moments. Um, Absolutely. And uh, But first, before we get there, a word from Thousand Hills Lifetime Grazed. Thousand Hills Lifetime Grazed Beef. Grass-fed beef right here in Minnesota, you know. We make a career talking about clean water, native habitat, and some of the best environmental practices. That's exactly why I'm so excited about Thousand Hills. You know, it is locally raised beef done differently. You see, Thousand Hills uses what is called regenerative agriculture to raise their cattle. Those beef cows, they graze in fields of wild grasses, and they move between a lot of different fields of grass. It is a sustainable ecosystem free of synthetic fertilizers and chemical herbicides. It's a system of agriculture that promotes clean water, natural grasses, and the best beef you've tasted. It's beef raised the right way. You can check out Thousand Hills Lifetime Grazed Grass-Fed Beef to understand their regenerative agricultural practices and fall in love with Thousand Hills Beef. And also, North Dakota Tourism. Another of our great sponsors, North Dakota Tourism. And you need to start planning your fall bird hunt in North Dakota at LegendaryND.com. North Dakota right now is home to more than 800,000 plots hunting acres. Plots, that is private land that is open to public hunting. The plots guides, they show you exactly where all that land hides. Right now, North Dakota's ringneck crowing counts, they're up like 15% this year. The state is also home to an estimated 2.9 million breeding ducks. It is an absolute outdoor oasis. Bag your limit this fall in North Dakota. Visit legendaryND.com. All right, Lane, you have a wealth of knowledge and information to pass on to others. And I I know that you actually have classes that people um, can take that um, can spend spend time with you and learn about photography. And and if you were, you know, to give people just tips and tricks on how they can capture um, people, places, moments, besides, you know, I love the advice of going to places and where there's less people or moments where people won't be around to capture those um, images. So you might have something unique. Do you have other advice that you usually give to um, photographers, either if they're beginning or advanced? You bet, you know, and there's of course lots of them. And on my workshops, uh, I will tell you that one of the things that I try not to do is I, I don't, want people to travel with me expecting that they're going to learn how to use their cameras. Now, I know you think, oh, well, geez, that's what, you know, that's what I need to know. Well, you should really get to know your camera as an instrument before you travel um, with me on photo tours. Not that I'm not going to help you. It's just that I am more interested in teaching you how to learn to see Mm -hmm. and to develop your own style. Because oftentimes what happens is, you know, you get people go, hey, I would love to be able to go to the Black Hills and shoot Harney Peak. And what's the best time to go there? Like, well, you've got to do your research. You've got to find out why do you want to go to Harney Peak? And the whole point of going places is to 
develop your own style. And DeWitt Jones, uh, former photographer at Geographic, had a great quote, and I've always loved this. It stuck to me like glue. He said, "You need when you're out photographing, you need to shoot what you feel, not what you see. And that's really important because if you're ever going to establish a sense of who you are as a photographer, you can't worry about what anybody else is thinking or is going to say about a photograph that you have taken. And so what I'm getting at here is that you shoot what you feel. And if you see something and you go, that's pretty cool. Look at that. I love that shape. I love that composition. I love that light. Find a way to photograph that item which reflects what you're thinking, those thoughts in your head. And if you do, you're being true to yourself as an artist and photographing what you felt. And if you show it to somebody and they say, what is this? You don't have to say anything. It's something that you liked. It's different than something anybody else would shoot. So that defines your style. So we have to get to that point as a photographer. Once you get that point, you are already 50% a better photographer than you were the day before. And it's just that it's just that simple, but it's also just that hard, you know, uh, to be able to do that. One of the other things I like to tell people is that it comes with exposure. When people are taking, almost everybody shoots everything on automatic. I shoot 90% of all of my work on manual because I am constantly making decisions between my shutter speed and my aperture for a reason. And so when people are shooting on automatic, if they don't understand why they are choosing a shutter speed or letting the camera choose a shutter speed or an aperture, they could be missing part of that technical side of things that helps bring along the vision that they have in the photograph they want to take. And that, that, that encompasses things like depth of field motion or stop action, things like that. So it's really important. Again, you know, music is a great way to make analogies, but you know, you, you can't play the guitar if you can't play the notes. And photography is the same way. If you don't know your instrument, you can't make visual music. And it's, it's, just, it's just a marriage that you have to come up with. And is there, you know, I've, I've personally have had a desire to get into photography and I purchased what I thought was a simple camera and I'm still need to learn the camera before I get out there and start taking pictures. Is there a camera you suggest that if you're a beginner getting into photography, that would be a great place to start? Cause I mean, you can get a little overwhelmed when you're just trying to get started and what camera do you buy? You know, what lens? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's such a tough question, Laura, because there's, it? <laughs> well, it, it, because again, technology is changing. I mean, I could say one camera now, the kinds that I use and people say, they they criticize my thoughts because they'll say, well, everything's moving into mirrorless oh, as opposed okay. to the, you know what I mean? And they're getting smaller. But a lot of people, as they get older, they don't like the smaller cameras because they're harder to use because you can't see what the menu says. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there's all kinds of debates. I think that the biggest thing is make sure if you're looking for a camera, you're going to want to have, you know, a camera that if it has a fixed focused lens that comes with it, you know, one lens that you can't remove then you're kind of married to that focal length, right? As a photographer, I shoot 90% of all of my pictures are taken either with a really wide angle, big wide angle, or a really big telephoto lens because I see the world that way. And if you get a fixed focus lens, you're limited to just what that lens can have. So if you're getting a camera, you know, and you want something a little elevated versus a point and shoot, 
make sure that you can change the lenses and then make sure that you have something like a zoom lens that they have zoom lenses out there that are 24 to 300 everything in one lens wow. and so those are things for you to consider when you're out you know traveling and of course there's there's quality, there's costs, there's so many variables that come into doing that. But I've always thought the simpler, the better. You know, photography is really pretty simple. It's just measuring light and using your lens to capture the photograph. And the rest of it's kind of up to you on how you do it. I guess the other top tip that I would like to give people is shoot tight. There are too many photographers, you know, they, they take a picture of a bear that they shoot out the window on Yellowstone, they go, see the bear? And you're looking, you're saying, okay, I see a tree, I see a rock. Oh, is that the bear? You know, they're too far away. And so photographers, like in wildlife photography, like in sports photography, like in portrait photography, fill the frame. Get closer to subject. If you're not close enough, get closer. Move your feet. And so the more you fill your frame, the more simplified your image becomes and more you're directing exactly what your audience to see is in that frame and sometimes you can't so you crop you know but that's really important fill the frame with the information that you want to share if it doesn't belong in the frame get rid of it great advice and you also enjoy having people in your photographs you're saying a lot of people um seem to shy away from having human images in their photograph but you pr you prefer to have people in your photograph enjoying everyday life really yeah, I, I mean, people tell the story, um, you know, because most of my life I've worked for magazines. If a photo editor wants to have a photograph and, you know, you kind of alluded to this earlier, Laura, is that, you know, in taking pictures of, of people and being out, if if somebody's doing a story on the Grand Canyon and you've got a scenic of the Grand Canyon and then you've got another photograph, the editor's trying to make the choice of what to run in the magazine. They get a great picture of the Grand Canyon of the Colorado down at the bottom, beautiful light, all of this. Then there's another photographer that sent in another shot that's got a picture of people busting down in the raft, going over a giant wave the size of the cliffs. Which one are they going to take? Which one are they going to use? Chances are they're going to use the one with the people in it because the reader can put themselves in that raft. And they want to see what it's like. They feel what's going on. There's action. There's beauty. There's scale. And so. I've always become accustomed to shooting people because it's always been part of my job, just like your job, you know, is photographing and talking to people. They are the story. Where they are and what it's about is a different part of the story, but the people are the main focus. And so if you keep people in your pictures, I think it's a more rewarding experience, but most photographers that I know, especially ones that take my workshops, they're definitely afraid of taking pictures of people they don't know. You know, they just, they're afraid they're gonna be confronted. And I tell you, digital, has made that experience so much more enjoyable because you can be on the street or in the national park and you get a wonderful picture, say somebody skipping stones down by the lake. You don't know them from Adam, but if sure. you get a great shot of them and you walk down and you show them the shot you just got of them, because in digital, you can do that. In film days, you couldn't do that. And mm -hmm. it really helps establish kind of a bond of trust and the way the world works now, you can say, listen, I would love to send this to you. So I'm going to give you my email. And if you send me a note and say, hey, remember that stone skipping photo you took of me? So then you're not putting it on them. Give me your information. 
Sure. I give them my information. And then if they want to contact me, I'm more than happy then to send them that photograph. And so you establish something. It's, you know, it's being a good steward of the medium as well. You know, not everybody is, uh, you know, paparazzi. You know, most of us just want to share the beautiful things that we photographed. Absolutely. In today's day and age, you know, everybody loves content for their own social media. Oh, that's right. That's right. You're a hero out there taking the pictures for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the other thing, too, is that since the pandemic kind of came around, I mean, this has been um, going on before the pandemic, but the pandemic really has brought this to light is that, you know, our national parks and our state parks and our national monuments have become so much more crowded because people are flocking to these wide open spaces to go visit them now because you can't really go anyplace else, right? And so one of the things you see, and I remember seeing this once, I, I took a group to Arches National Park and we went to Sunrise Arch, you know, for a, for a shoot at sunrise and you're climbing up, you know, you gotta get there an hour before the sun comes up and you've got your group and you're on these trails and then you get to the ridge that Sunrise Arch is perched upon and you get there and there's a thousand people there. Mm. And you're going, oh my gosh, you know, and that's your first reaction because you kind of want to take those kinds of hikes. You've gone in, you know, you've gotten up before the sun came up and you made your hike, carried your gear and you thought, I want this place all to myself. Well, that really doesn't happen anymore. It really doesn't. So the way to make, again, this is coming from the editorial photographer in me is that, okay, well, you've got people in there. You're not going to get them out of it. So make that work for you. Find a way that you can show, if it's so crowded, find a way to shoot Sunrise Arch that shows how many people are there. Lie down on the ground, shoot between hundreds of people's of legs trying to see the Sunrise Arch. Change your angle, get pictures of people all lined up with their cameras and shoot them taking pictures of the picture. You know what I mean? So there's no reason to get upset. Just find a way to photograph that that still tells the story. You know, because people start yelling, photographers will get very aggressive. Get out of my way. Get out of my way. I, 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 I've been here for hours. Don't cut in front of me. You know, it's like, oh, my gosh, chill. You know, <laughs> it is it is what it is. So make a good photograph of that. You know, I hiked up to the Delicate Arch in uh, Moab, Utah this summer, and we left at what we thought was an early moment. And of course, when we got up there, there was quite a few people up there. But <laughs> what's nice is everybody was lined up to take turns in the arch so each person could have right, right. themselves in the arch. I was like, this actually works really well. Like every, it's just kind of this known assembly line. You hop in line and people are helping take other people's pictures for them. And yep. Yep. Very friendly environment. But we were able to get images of just ourselves in that giant arch, um, which was really cool. I was, it was so very nice cool. Very so cool. Helping, taking pictures of each other and, so it was really fun. And that was a moment where, boy, did I wish I had my camera with me and actually knew how to work the instrument because all of us taking these images with our, our phones, I think we're missing out on a lot of beautiful moments because the, the iPhone or the other phones or whatever can only do so much for you, obviously. And yeah, that's right. That's right. Our pictures. And I just sometimes I cringe that I, I have not sat down and really learned my camera. So I, I'm taking it with me. And that's going to be my goal for 2022 is I'm going to learn that camera. Um, Good. Good for you. Or something. So 
but you have some wonderful ways that people can spend time with you at workshops and stuff. And I want um, to give listeners a chance to hear where they can um, learn from you. But before we get there, um, a word from Minnesota Propane Association. Did you know that a propane gas furnace lifespan averages 20 years, while electric heat pumps only last 14 years? And propane furnaces work in all temperatures while delivering warm and consistent heat to your home. Why buy two heating systems when one propane furnace can do it all? It lasts longer, works better, and it costs less. These things and more are done with propane today. The right energy right now. And also a word from Connecticut. Hey, I'm really picky when it comes to my drinking water, and I have the reverse osmosis drinking water system from Connecticut, and I love it. It takes out contaminants in the water, it removes chlorine, and most important, it tastes great, which is the one thing I'm probably most picky on is how does my water taste. So having Kinetico also means that I use less plastic water bottles, which we all know is a definite bonus for our environment. For more information, visit Kinetico.com to find a dealer near you. And Starbank. Hi there, Ron Shera here for Starbank. If you're putting your money into mega banks down the street, who knows where that money's being used? Bank locally. Keep your money local with a community bank that actually cares about you, your family, your business, and your goals. Check out the bank we use at Minnesota Bound. Try Minnesota's own Star Bank. You can find them online at starbank.net. When you call Star Bank, you actually hear a real living person answering the phone. StarBank has 10 convenient locations around Minnesota to serve you and all the mobile banking products that you need to manage your money. Check out all that StarBank has to offer at StarBank.net. All right, Lane, before we go, you have a couple, I believe, really cool workshops where people can um, sign up to spend some significant time with you and learn about um, photography and or wood bowl carving, if I'm not mistaken. But your photography... Uh, workshop is at wintergreen dog sledding. Is that correct? In yeah, Minnesota? I've got my, my winter session. In fact, this year is my 30th year of working, uh, taking a photo adventure workshop at uh, Paul Shirky's uh, wintergreen dog sled lodge up in Ely. And uh, yeah, that usually happens every year about the same time. It's the end of January, the beginning first couple of days of February. And it's a blast. It's, you know, it's it's four days of dog sledding and winter photography and adventure photography. And if you like dogs, this is a great uh, photo adventure to take because it's, it's all about the dogs. I mean, that's just it. It's just all about the dog experience. And it's a blast. And then we have winter on top of it. And we've had everything from the Aurora, you know, to days where it's 40 below when we get out and we toss the hot water up in the air against the sun and it's just spectacular and again it's just covering your experience that's what we do on this workshop is covering your dog sled experience awesome and at wintergreen um, dog sled lodge they actually are using alaskan inuit dogs so they're even the dogs are pretty spectacular as far as the breed that you are um working with yeah, these are these are the, you know, you've got thoroughbreds, you know, and then you've got, you know, your, um, uh, what am I thinking here? What's the 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 horses? Not the plow horses, but you know the. Oh, oh thoroughbreds, water horses. You've got Percheron. <coughs> yeah, or, just just the the workhorse. I mean, so these these Canadian Inuit dogs will pull you through anything, but they're not racing dogs. So they're not they're not going 30 miles an hour, but they'll pull you through just about anything. And it's a slow, steady pace. And they are, you know, if you're looking at the um, the makeup of dog breeds throughout time and you've got wolves, you know, at the top of the list of of, of dogs before they started, you know, 
becoming chihuahuas. Number two are the Canadian Inuit dogs. And so they're big and strong and Cherokee's crew and, and Paul himself, they've developed just a very unique way of being able to work with these dogs and not be afraid of them. And uh, they become your buddies. All they want to do is lean against you and get petted. And uh, then they just work like crazy. I, it's just, it's, they live to do this. These dogs just live to do this. And it's a very unique experience. They are so loud when you get ready to take off. And then when they take off, it's quiet. That's what's so fascinating about sled dogs in general. They are um, noisy. They're excited. Sometimes they even get in some squabbles with each other when they're, you know, getting hooked up to their harnesses because they are ready to go. And they're, they're ready like, to go. <laughs> they're silent. They're just happy as, you know, happy as clams to, to pull you all day long on that sled. It's really fascinating. And it then is. also have, uh, do you also teach a course at North House? folk school on wood bowl carving or photography? You know, I don't do, you know, wood turning there because again, I'm trying to keep the wood turning as more as yes. an art therapy for myself. But I've been teaching at North House now, I think I'm in my 17th or 18th year um, there. And we do two, two workshops a year there. Uh, we do one in the summer session, then we do one in the fall. And uh, those again are, you know, uh, three to five days and, um, the concept of, of that is no different than the one I do at Wintergreen in that what we do is we go out and we learn to tell stories of Grand Marais and beyond. And so that means I set up people that we do a portrait of. We go to some of the local um, uh, areas of fascination, like some of the rivers and, of course, the North Shore and the forests. And with the fort up in Grand Portage, I mean, we, we try to cover as we can. So when you leave there and you go home, um, you can take the 10 pictures that we had in our final show and show your friends and they will have a well-documented but not repetitive look at Grand Marais and beyond. And so that's kind of the basis of the story there. So it's a, it's a blast. It's always a hoot. So cool. Well, if you're interested in photography and you want to learn from one of the best, we're lucky to have Lane Kennedy here in our backyard of Minnesota. And Lane, thank you so much for taking time to chat with me on the Minnesota Bound podcast. I um, I always enjoy your stories and um, the way you see the world. I, I find it um, very fascinating. So it's well, a pleasure to be on today. Thanks, thanks so much for reaching out. It's always a treat to talk with you. And if you are interested in uh, signing up for one of Lane's workshops, I believe they can do that on your website, lanekennedy.com. Uh, you can, or uh, in the case of both North House and Wintergreen, like with Wintergreen, contact Wintergreen directly because they handle all the registration there. And North House, the same way. Uh, oh. On my own workshops where we tour you know, around the world, um, go to my website. But for both Wintergreen uh, uh, Dog Sled Lodge and the North House Folk School, go directly to their websites and you'll be able to register right there. Awesome, do not miss it. I would suggest signing up right away. I can imagine those seats get filled pretty quickly. <laughs> well, thanks again, Lane. We really appreciate you spending time with us on the Minnesota Bound podcast. And also a special thanks to our sponsors. Um, sorry, Brandon, I gotta do that over, there, over again. I got lost. All right, I'm gonna do that one more time, Lane. Hold with me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is what happens. Well, thank goodness there's editing in these. Uh, thank you again, Lane, for spending time with us in the Minnesota Bound podcast. And also special thanks to Minnesota Propane, Connecticut, Thousand Hills, Lifetime Grays, North Dakota Tourism, and Star Bank. And last but not least, don't forget to introduce a kid to the great outdoors. Mm -hmm.